Hello, and thank you for listening to another episode of EDS at Union Now. In today's episode, we will be continuing a series called Margin Speak, in which the Reverend Dr. Joshua Samuel speaks with theologians and activists from the Global South about how they are experiencing and responding to climate change and environmental destruction. Dr. Samuel is EDS at Union's visiting lecturer for theology, global Christianity, and mission. In this conversation, he speaks with the Reverend Dr. Gion Javia, who is a native Methodist pastor from Tonga, who serves as the research fellow at Trinity Theological College, Auckland, and with the Public and Contextual Theology Research Center at the Charles Sturt University in Australia. Dr. Javia has recently edited two important works, Religion and Power and Scripture and Resistance, both available through Lexington Fortress Press. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and help us spread the word by sharing this show with your friends. And with that, enjoy our second episode of Margin Speak with Joshua Samuel. What are some of the environmental issues that that you in your region, Pacific Island region, see and experience? And, and how do some of those things intersect with other forms of social and political injustices? Thank you. I, I think the first thing was in the Pacific, uh, these are different islands. So the, 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 our people don't really understand what's the science behind uh, global warming, climate change. Uh, but the thing that they see, uh, the, regular, the, the increasing uh, number of cyclones, for example, uh, like in, in my home island of Tonga, uh, the first three months of this year, we saw 11 cyclones already. Uh, so categories two and three. Uh, and, and, you know, a category two cyclone is already too strong for poor people. Um, so who have very, who, whose homes are not as strong. So that's what the people see. Uh, in the last five years, I think, well, the, the first time on record that we see Category 5 cyclones. So those are uh, ridiculously uh, strong cyclones for, for our people. So that's one side. The other side is, so ordinary people or normal people don't really understand, are not worried or concerned if this is the effect of climate change. This is what they see. This is what they experience. Um, sea level rising is also uh, part of something that, that they see, and sea level ri- uh, rising goes with the, with the erosion of, of uh, coastline. It's very critical. Uh, I mean, it's happening in Florida and other parts of the world, uh, Bangladesh, for example. Uh, but it's critical in the Pacific because the land are very narrow. Then you can hear the you can hear the breaking of the waves on both sides of the island. For example, the biggest island in Tuvalu, in my estimation, the widest part of the island is only about um, 600 meters. So when, when, you know, when there's a, a wind goes through the island and a breeze goes through the whole island. So those are the, the, the frequency of the cyclones and the uh, sea level rising. Uh, was I think you've heard of uh, the big tide. Uh, I don't know what the, the English word for that. Tsunami? Uh, a tsunami? Is that, is that a tsunami? No, no. This is just a regular high tide, which, oh. which is extremely 
higher than normal once a month. Um, so, and with seawater coming up through the, the cracks of the, the band. So these are the things that, that they see, but it's not new. Yeah, it's not, I mean, the, the, uh, the king tide, the, the king tide is not new to the, to the islands. They're familiar with it. And climate change has, the, the, the effect on, on the environment has been called, named because of global warming or climate change. But this is something that, that islanders have seen for many years. It's only when, I mean, this is the issue for us, only because it threatens places like, you know, Christchurch in New Zealand and uh, Florida, uh, that it becomes an issue for the rest of the world, whereas this is something that, that we have. It's part of, of our growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and part of the struggle with climate, with the uh, sea level rising is there are not many spaces on the island where people can escape. It's funny for us to hear of, you know, a cyclone coming on the east coast of the USA and people can evacuate. Mm. Yeah, on the island, the evacuation is is not <laughs> it's not there. Even especially since the island is so narrow, that where do you, where are you gonna evacuate to? So these are these are things that that, that we see uh, regularly. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the points that you made was very interesting. Uh, that these phenomena uh, have uh, you know have been present for a long time now, and yet somehow the attention is is now given because it, it affects certain parts of the world or certain people, uh, which which personally I always find it, it uh, uncomfortable in you know you know in uh, in any ecological conversations or uh, environmental justice conversations uh, that. Oh, we need to do this because it's going. It's going to affect our future. It's going to affect our children. Where will you go? What What's going to happen? And uh, and this is something I typically see in the West, especially among uh, what you may call progressive liberal uh, groups uh, with, with good intentions. I don't blame them, but there is always this this thing uh, which we can say, I guess teasingly. Uh, oh, I, I I need to do. I need to care about this because it, my my back is on fire. Uh, yeah. it's it's yeah. that kind of a mentality just just for the sake of clarification i guess it, uh, what you're trying to say is that these uh, rising sea levels are just because it was always there doesn't mean that it's it's something natural it's still it has been orchestrated by by various forces and and, and structures yeah it has become more accelerated in the last few years so i mean it's it's common it's a common story in, in for example, Kiribati. Um, the first time I went to Kiribati, uh, one of the retired uh, ministers took me to his home island and to the village and to show me that the home where he was born is the spot where the home was, is now like 30 meters in the sea. So within his lifetime, at least 30 meters. I mean, that's the spot. There, there were a uh, uh, further coast that has been uh, wiped out. Mm-hmm. So within his lifetime, this has happened. But it's it's worse now than when he was younger. So how how do some of the other factors play into this uh, ecological crisis? I mean, one of the issues that we see uh, so much in in America is racism. Uh, we 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 are forced and we have to talk about, it's imperative that we talk about environmental racism. 
And this is one of the major critiques in the last decade or so that in environmental justice programs and schemes have been have been racist to begin with in some sense. Uh, I've been so <laughs> blind and and so and and we'll get to this later. So prescriptive and bossy and and patronizing. Uh, and in India, where I come from, well, the major issue has been caste. And again, uh, many of these people with good intentions, uh, good-minded, uh, eco-justice warriors, have been casteist, uh, have been completely blind to the suffering of oppressed communities, especially Dalits, untouchable communities. And of course, there is always the presence of patriarchy. So as, as a biblical scholar with, uh, with a concern for eco-justice, uh, how do you see these intersections uh, the intersectionality of these various issues um, in Tonga. First of all, the, each of the island community in the Pacific have a different way of, of uh, order or organization, how we're talking about caste. So the, the, the intersection is, is more with class. Mm. Where, and class is identified in terms of who, access, who have access to land and resources. Mm. So the you know, obviously, if you have a small plot of land where you, you can uh, grow food and, and maybe sell some to get some, some resources and, and that plot of land is, is taken away by the sea, then you become landless or homeless and then you depend on those who, are, uh, who have other or, or larger uh, pieces of land for you to grow food for your family. and. And the uh, and those would be the upper class. So so class is related to land, and and um, and those are the people who are driving the society. Now this is a generalized way of looking uh, at this. Uh, the effect of climate change impacts the poor people more so than the the, the ones with wealth, and wealth not just in in the capitalist. Uh, Western understanding, but wealth in terms of the society, uh, because wealth is defined. Uh, land is is one uh, uh, way of defining wealth. The authority in the public space is also a factor in defining who has wealth. So people who have access to land and people who have access to the chance to voice their opinions uh, affect what happens in the government. So mm. okay, not just the government, the church, because in, in, in many of the, in the Pacific, the government, state and, and church are so interconnected. Yeah, so the, 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 the impact of, of climate change is felt more by the, those with, uh, with less less wealth in a specific way, and less access to resource. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about, in, in many of these islands, uh, those with, who are considered to be with wealth are not rich, mm -hmm. but they have influence. Uh, mm -hmm. So, like, they, in some communities, they are, it could be male or female, uh, some respected elder, so the community will take care of that person. And the people in the community who take care of that person, if they don't have resources, then the whole thing, yeah. So it's, I think people have, uh, some of our people have identified relationality and reciprocity as, a, as two defining elements in our culture. Mm -hmm. So when climate um, effect uh, impacts the, 
one side of the society, it, it affects the whole. Resistance is, is um, it's an interesting thing, uh, but you need to feel, see it in, in the broad uh, intersections, yeah? Um, let, let me just use this anecdote. There was a West Papua, is uh, part of this island of Papua that's colonized by this, uh, occupied by uh, uh, Indonesia. And part of the attraction, I think, uh, I mean, this is so obvious, because it's a mineral-rich island. It's the biggest island in the Pacific. So West Papua uh, occupied. Um, and for there was a time, I think it was in the 70s, um, that they flew in, they used the airstrip to fly in uh, food for the miners who, who are mining the resources of West Papua. So a group of, of uh, just local uh, farmers uh, decided to bring their crops, the, the, uh, the things that instead of taking their crops to the street or the market, to come and block the airstrip. And this was led by a, a woman uh, I mean, a woman who is about half of my size. So this is like uh, Josepa. Uh, I, can't, I, can't, I don't remember her full name now. Um, so whenever the plane would come to land to bring rice and food for the uh, for the miners, they would spread out their, their, their crops on the airstrip and the plane would not be able to land. And for them, why bring food from Jakarta or somebody you know somewhere else in Indonesia when there is food there in uh, in um, uh, West Papua? But this is a form of resistance because they and, and this is just a local people, mainly women, and using the the harvest from their crops, you know, cassava or taro or, or whatever, and 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 they they stopped that for several months until the military came and, and, and moved them away and, and uh, defended the, the airstrip. But I, I think resistance needs to be seen in that, in that frame. It's, it's not resistance where, you know, Black Lives Matter is where people will go to the street and, and, uh, and be vocal. Uh, resistance in the Pacific is, is a small, we're talking about small numbers. Mm -hmm. But the resistance they do is is in a kind of a sublime way, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not 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 for the sake of resistance. It's also for the sake of their livelihood, like what these women were trying to sell their crops. Uh, so, um, I mean, yeah, resistance is there, but you need to see it in that with island eyes. Uh, uh, it's not, you know the resistance in, in that you hear from Latin America and other parts. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, but the resistance that seems to work tend to be led by women. I mean, in, in my home island, there was a anti, uh, there was a form of resistance in 2006, I think, and they burned down like half of the, or more than half of our capital town. But nothing really has come out of that. So it's it's the resistance on the what I call that led by the normal people. Mm. Um, I think liberation theology referred to the poor, uh, ordinary people from from South African conversation. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to use I'm referring to them as the normal people. So it's the rest of 
<laughs> rest of us who are the abnormal. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But the, in the case of Theosepa, it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and resistance uh, is should not be considered in the ideological or political level only. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in the Dalits uh, case, it's you know about Hinduism and about scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, resistance in the Pacific is about survival as well. Mm-hmm. So this is, uh, mm-hmm. um, and it's hard to, uh, yeah, it's it's resistance by the by the normal folk need to be seen in a different way from resistance by people with with uh, physical power. No, I think I think like you, you have hit the bullseye. Uh, and this is very powerful because uh, at the risk of kind of blowing my own trumpet and advertising for myself, this is kind of the same argument that I'm making in my book, uh, even oh, with really? girls. Because I think one of the problems, and I'm using Saba Mahmoud's politics of piety, uh, this whole understanding of agency and resistance from a Western liberal uh, perspective has forced us to limit the understanding of resistance, uh, yeah. and even liberation for that matter. Uh, yeah. So one of the questions people often ask me is, oh, why aren't the Dalits, you know, overthrowing, you know, uh, casteism? It's like, uh, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, I mean, of course, there have been protests, there are, there are ongoing protests, and which we, are, we appreciate, but uh, and, and, and but the reality is much more complicated, and it actually you know involves their their, their livelihood, their, their survival, their well-being, uh, and 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 all of those. Uh, and that's where I found. And when you said uh, resistance of ordinary people, if, I, I, if that's the phrase that you used, I'm sorry if I if I misheard it or the if no, it's normal people. The normal people, yes, that's beautiful. Uh, I found uh, James Scott's uh, Everyday Resistance is very helpful. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I'm trying to do, or I've done in my book, is, uh, is uh, talk about uh, uh, divine possessions, uh, the, the, the oncoming of uh, uh, goddesses or gods, uh, spirits upon devotees, uh, mostly Dalits in this case, uh, and how that can be seen as a form of resistance, not so much as to change the way the society functions or to overthrow and, and to be revolutionary in any sense, but to, in some sense, push the boundaries a little bit or, or to reaffirm or reassert their, their right to live uh, and, 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 and their own spaces in, in, in which they, uh, they live. Um, so, what you say is actually very powerful and I find it very important. And I think, uh, and, and I, and I hope, I really hope uh, that the liberation theology kind of moves in that direction. Um, mm. uh, I mean, we're grateful for what liberation theologians have done and are doing, but I think mm. it is these everyday resistances, resistances by normal people that in some sense is more realistic, I guess, and, and more practical. Hi again. I'm interrupting to set a little bit of context for the next few minutes of the conversation. At this point, the conversation turns to two essays that Dr. Javier has recently written. The first essay is entitled The Politics of Climate Change, a Talanoa from Oceania. And the second is What Gain Have the Workers from Their Toil? Contexting Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 through 13 in Pacifica. 
We will include links in the episode summary for those who would like to read these essays afterward. When we, when we do biblical interpretation or we do theological reflection, uh, we, we, to an extent we are answering questions that people are interested in. Um, but from our situation, from our context, we are answering somebody else's question. Mm-hmm. So my way of, of reading in, in, in this particular piece you're referring to, I'm wanting us to, to have our own question that we answer through the biblical text. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a question or in the case of, I think this is the piece that deals with verse part four. Mm-hmm. Um, how how the, the, the biblical text of Ecclesiastes uh, want us to, well, we want readers to reflect on, you know, what is the gain to the worker? Uh, so who, who, whose interest is served by that kind of question? And my the con- conclusion I reached in this particular piece is it's the interest of the landowner, the, the, the one who owns the, the, the farm. That, that's the mandate. And it's in his or her interest because we need to enjoy our workers' labors. Uh, so, but in a context like Kiribati, where you know you, you try to plant a, plant something and nothing grows, uh, how can you enjoy the task of of uh, working or laboring? So, I'm trying to shift from, and, and this goes back to my comment earlier about class to shift the attention from the landowner, uh, the owner of plantations to the laborers. Mm-hmm. So in the interest of the laborers, I think that my conclusion in that piece was, it's a good question, but the answers are not satisfying. So this is where I, I break away from the expectation of biblical scholarship, where you're supposed to, to identify and, and hopefully um, support the conclusion or the answers given in the biblical text. And I'm, I'm not always in depth because, um, first of all, I'm Tongan. I mean, I'm not Jewish, I'm not uh, European, I'm not something else. Uh, so I have to read as myself. Uh, and if this particular text is, is privileging the, the interests of, of landowners or interests of I mean, even church, so, Part of my reading, and this is my maybe way of resistance, is to to come out of the shadows of scripture and and to read it within our within our context. Mm-hmm. And our context is always is is climate affected. For me, it's about it's it's about removing the control from the author. It's removing the control from the scholar. Mm. It's removing it's this issue of control where. Mm. Well, I I shouldn't I, I don't write to control. I, I like I said I'm I'm more an activist. I write to, and I use the word act, uh, irritate. I, I write to irritate people so that they that they think. But then you know irritation can be just annoying, and people will say, "Oh, this is I don't want to waste my time on this particular piece," and that's fine. Um, but at, at least it's not it's it's not providing the answer. This is the problem with scholarship in my opinion, where the scholarship and the mission tend to be looking for solutions, mm-hmm. looking for, uh, for, yeah, for resolution. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm hoping that 
as scholars, what we need to do is to to open things up so people can enter the conversation, the Talano. Mm. Because Talano is, uh, when, you, when you shut it down, then you are controlling the whole the conversation. So Talano is, is it's, it's the issue of orality, yeah? We, we, we engage, we enter, and at some point exit. Um, but it's, it's um, yeah, open-ended, uh, it's inviting. That's another, another way of, of looking at it. It works for me, it doesn't work for everyone, it doesn't work for all Pacific Islanders. Um, but the other thing, I mean, going back to scripture, relating to what you had said earlier, uh, and we are, in our region, we, many of us are still trapped in the, you know, the missionary position. Uh, they, they, they're still stuck on that. Um, but we need, some of us are able to move on. And, and to use an example is uh, one of the responses in the mainline churches in the Pacific to climate injustice, climate change, is to draw on the flood story, you know, um, um, Noah. And, and they have what they call the rainbow, so rainbow reading, where, you know, there's a rainbow, therefore God is not going to do this again. Um, so, they look at the they, they, they look at the end of the narrative to see God and, and they trust God will come through, which is you know, every time you have a cyclone, you have to to rethink if God is really keeping this promise or not. But uh, some of us are, and this is something that we're trying to to uh, initiate that when we look at climate change and biblical texts, especially like the one on Noah. We need to look at climate trauma as well. What is the, the traumatic the trauma that has been caused by these ecological disasters? Uh, readers of, of the flood story move quickly to get to the covenant mm -hmm. and don't consider the the trauma mm -hmm. that was that have been may have happened. Um, and and you can reflect on that in terms of the flood story. Uh, the liberation story back uh, forward into Exodus, um, because all of those plagues had environmental uh, caused environmental disaster and environment. But people then jump quickly to the liberation and the moving away from Egypt. Mm. And nobody, but we need to also deal with the the trauma that comes from disaster. Mm -hmm. So this. Uh, uh, this is the conversation that's taking place in our region related to climate change. Mm -hmm. So we are shifting from climate change and climate justice to climate resilience, but not for the sake of survival. It's for the sake of redefining our text as a, by, by offering uh, alternative interpretations. It's we are being resilient against the uh, climate uh, injustice. And then climate trauma is the other uh, uh, wave uh, that we are trying to engage with. I'm all over the place now, but this is what being open-ended and being in Illinois is about. So you, you, yeah, yeah. You follow, yeah. No, that's that's just perfect. That's just perfect. I mean, some of us who who are familiar with oral traditions will find this. I mean, that sure. is a bit comfortable, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, that actually kind of, you know, uh, 
this is another question that I that I had in mind. So, uh, what is the role of the church in all this? And I think you you already hinted there that the church itself is in some sense uh, uh, promoting this this rainbow uh, you know promise narrative and 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 uh, but but apart from that, uh, uh, I'm kind of interested to know what else. I mean. You're part of the church. You are a Methodist minister, so you, so you're not separate from the church. But but what else is the church is also uh, what else is the church is doing uh, uh, to to talk about this, to to engage with these issues, and uh, and maybe empower the people. Uh, so that that's some, could you could you just throw some light on that? Yeah, I mean the, the church is, is very good at, at doing things like you know writing Bible studies and having youth rallies and, um, um, and, and but the, the, the majority of these events is about faith. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you still believe in God given the, this particular context? Um, there's the questioning of, of God in light of these contexts happens like at the margins of, of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the thing, this is the thing about our context where majority of the people are somewhat related to the, to the, uh, to a church, church organization. So the questioning that happens in the church, and the questions that's happening at the margins are supported by people who are involved in, in the church. So we are doing these things. I think we um, there are certain things that need to be done that the churches, our churches, are not as an official body are not are not uh, considering or are not yet ready to participate in. Uh, for example, some of, of our marginalized or minoritized uh, people have been pushing for. Uh, um, inviting uh, places like Australia and New Zealand to come up with policies that will um, will um, help uh, uh, climate refugees. Mm-hmm. Now, see, this is stuck because the UN does not recognize the refugees, climate refugees, as a real thing. Um, but there are no climate refugees in New York, so this is part of the problem. The UN needs to come to our places. And, and let me say that uh, in our region, um, the resettlement because of environmental disaster goes all the way back to the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for example, uh, well, not in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, 1945, I think the date, or 47, um, there was a resettlement from Tuvalu to Fiji. Mm-hmm. So our people are familiar with, with being resettled because of, of climate. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, it wasn't called climate disaster then, environmental uh, uh, disaster. Uh, in my humble opinion, as a, uh, uh, I mean, as somebody who has lived in different contexts, I probably would move into different contexts. Uh, uh, I, I feel that this division between church and state is actually often used very conveniently. Uh, I, mean, I mean, especially in America, I've seen this. I mean, 
it, there's a very strong constitutional basis to separate the church and state, you know, going back to Protestant Reformation and, and the Enlightenment. And, uh, and, and, and it sounds so good, but then, uh, and I think as a post-colonial scholar, uh, and it, that's where you come from, I can see that uh, post-colonial scholars have pointed out that, and post-secular scholars have pointed out that this division in some sense has never existed because our states have always been influenced by religious forces and religious ideologies, especially in places like the states, uh, where it's been almost entirely Christian, which is why people have so much uh, discomfort about people of other faiths, you know, coming into, you know, positions of power in the government. Uh, I mean, a person wearing hijab, uh, becoming a member of the Congress is still unthinkable. Uh, even always, well, always say, oh, no, the church is has never interfered with the state. Uh, and the state, vice versa, saying, I mean, both ways. And church, oh, no, we can't talk about it. And it's been a very convenient way of escaping from responsibilities uh, that oppress people, like segregation. I mean, today everybody celebrates Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But then we know when he was alive, his colleagues, church pastors, wanted to silence him. They threatened him you know, to, to, to quiet down. And so... It, you're absolutely right. You're making a very valid point. Uh, and yet, uh, I think that uh, we, it's, it's something that coexists. It, it, you know, it always inter interweaves with each other, the church and the state. And it could be used for positive ends, uh, which is where you're getting at, I, I, I believe, uh, that the church has a responsibility. It can't wash its hands away from its responsibility. Neither can the state pretend that, oh, no, we are all innocent. We are purely secular. Uh, in some sense, uh, I guess, as Talal Azad has said, as you know, it's uh, secularism is the Siamese twin of religion. So, uh, so that's actually a very powerful point that you're making, and and that's a good challenge for the church, uh, including churches in the states. I believe. Uh, I guess it, some of our churches are already engaged, like the Episcopal Church. I'm glad, but I mean, of course, we have still a lot more work to do. Uh, this sort of uh, uh, maybe final or maybe not, uh, but I just wanted to quickly uh, uh, want you to talk a little bit more about uh, Tapu. You know, when you talk about Talanova, uh, which is more than storytelling, which is an engaged form of storytelling, uh, and you talk about the sacredness uh, of the earth, the ocean, and some sense the cosmos, uh, which is which was very powerful to me. Um, because uh, the kind of traditions that I study, Dalit religious traditions, uh, in their worldview, the Dalit worldview, the, the whole cosmos, the whole, and in their, in their sense, of course, their, their, their worldview is limited. It's the village for them. Uh, and the village is the body of the goddess. The village is the goddess uh, or, God, or God. It's usually goddess. So, uh, um, so talking about the sacred, and then you also talked about how majority of, at least in Tonga, they are Christians. You know, the majority of the people are Christians, and uh, and the churches plays complicated plays in it, this whole uh, scheme of affairs. Uh, uh, I'm I'm interested to know how do people, how does the church, how does the church, with this awareness of tapu, with this awareness of of sort of. Uh, cosmic God consciousness or cosmic divine presence. 
talk about God and how do you talk about it? and what difference does it make? That's a, that's a huge question. Uh, it's the current practice is that the church decides what is active. That is in terms of the Christian tradition. It tends to be the, the privileged tradition. And this goes back to the missionaries where our our way of thinking, our the natives um, wisdom were considered paganism and um, not um, affirmed. And I, I think this is the same in a lot of the mission fields. But I, I um, how do we revive the indigenous uh, understanding of Taku? Um, but that gets romanticized because you know who decides what is the Tongan Taku? Yeah, or who the, the, the Taku in Tongan? Is it the Tongans who are living in Tonga or the Tongans who are living overseas or the Tongans who are born overseas? So this is a, another big mess. Um, um, but I think it will it will be helpful that we in, in the Pacific start pulling back from the missionary understanding of what is sacred and start to see the complexity of, sac of what is sacred for our people. And, and that can be different for different communities, whether back in the island, overseas, or, or growing up. Um, if we do that, one of the impacts is that sacredness, tapu, will be more complex uh, or more flexible or more open-ended or however you, you, you look at it. And I think this is a, it's a, it will change the way of our way of thinking where what is sacred is usually understood to be the truth and there can only be one of those sacred things. But a, a, a looking at, at what is sacred, tapu, in different in, in our different different platforms, if, if you think in terms of platforms, uh, then it becomes richer, and and the the, the richer it, the sacred is, it, the, the the more tapu it becomes. Now, this is I mean, in the, some people can say, am I rejecting what is uh, Christianity considers to be sacred? Um, not completely. I mean, there are some some things that Christianity brings that's not very helpful for us. So I, I replaced that, are those. But I'm, now I'm, you know, I'm still talking in the abstract. Um, quickly, a lot of our indigenous myths or legends involve some form of sacrifice. Yeah, someone is sacrificed, usually some, you know, women, or someone is sacrificed. And those have been accepted because of the value that Christianity gives to sacrificial way of, of living. Um, and our, a lot of our, uh, our theologians speak of discipleship. And discipleship is acceptable because of this sacrificial element. And this sacrificial element somehow justifies the sacrifice that took place in our legends. So I think those need to be, we need to rethink those. Now, there are legends that we have that is about survival. Um, I think the Christian mentality need to engage with survival as, as, a, as a, an important topic of, of, of frame for thinking of, of theology. Because survival 
this is how why resilience, um, as I mentioned, climate resilience uh, is significant. Now, this is this is this is another long conversation, uh, but we need to, in terms of tapu and sacredness, we need to add more platforms to how those have been understood so far. Now, I'm just speaking of the Pacific. Uh, I'm sure that other contexts from the global south would have their their forms of, of uh, their, their platforms for for talking about what is tapu. Because I think all of our cultures have this this thing, you know, what is sacred? Mm-hmm. We have a different way of understanding sacred. And some of the what is sacred for us in Tonga uh, may not be the same for, you know, the time of the Crusaders or something like So, sorry, it's a, um, yeah, it's a, it's a longer conversation and I've used the excuse many times now. <laughs> but, but but we need, I mean, go back to your, your, your frame. Eh? We need to to make things more open. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when people speak of tapu or taboo, it's about limiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with Taranoa and, and, and uh, Taranoa way of, of thinking, it's not about limiting, but about opening and, and being more welcoming. Mm-hmm. 